he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now that means that every night when he went to bed and every morning when he woke up, he was looking upon the city of Sodom. It's not a surprise to me, given that, that we don't hear about Lot for a chapter and a half. And when he appears again, guess where he's living? He and his family have moved inside. When you have the temple walls built, but the city has no boundaries that separates the people of God within it from the world around it, you know what's going to happen. There's a whole generation. Remember, it's been 14 years. So there are kids who are now teenagers, and all they can remember is living in a land of ruins with no clear boundaries. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Boundaries are important for children. They're important for teenagers. They're important for us all. Here's Nathan Guy. Who do you think you are? That question comes to us from all sides. And when God calls a people and he gives them a name and he builds walls around them, those walls serve to welcome in all who are willing to protect those who are inside and to protect them from wolves. The walls serve as walls of separation, walls of protection, and walls of distinction. Walls are important. If anybody here has ever uh, uh, talked to somebody who does therapy or counseling, or if you go to the self-help section of any bookstore and just start thumbing through, you'll hear this word very quickly. The word is boundaries. That having boundaries is super important for emotional well-being. Katie and I are reading parenting books for no particular reason, and we are discovering that boundaries are really important for children. They actually crave it, even when they don't act like they crave it. Boundaries are very important. It gives security. It gives identity. When you know you can run, but only between these posts, when you know that you are pleasing within a wide range, but not beyond, it gives you a sense of ownership, and also an appreciation that you know where you stand. We don't always recognize or appreciate walls of distinction. And because the temptation is so strong, we sometimes feel the lure to stray from those walls. And sometimes those walls are damaged and in need of repair. And there will be people standing on the hills all around, who will look at us, defining ourselves by these walls, fixing these walls, manning these walls, living within the hedges. And they'll say, just who do you think you are? And I love this quote from uh, Michael uh, Williams, uh, who wrote a book about seeing the gospel through the Jesus lens. We're going to say we are subjects of a wonderful king who grant his people a richer, more enduring, and profoundly fulfilling life than anything available outside the kingdom walls. That's the conclusion. Let's get to the beginning. 
14 years have passed since Ezra came and helped build the walls of the temple. So there is a temple there. You can identify it. But the city is still a heap of ruins. There are no concrete borders separating a chosen people from the rest of the world. And I'm reminded of the story of Lot. Do you remember this little tidbit in the book of Genesis? Reading through them for this series has helped me see some things I hadn't seen before. Do you remember that when it talks about Lot, we find out, you know, the writer automatically doesn't want you to like him very much because he and Abraham are talking about land and Abraham's like, why don't you pick? And he picks the best land and you're thinking, yeah, that probably tells me a lot about the guy. Well, at the end of that chapter, it says that Lot picked the land and it had a beautiful view over the city of Sodom. And Genesis, uh, the King James puts it really well. It says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now that means that every night when he went to bed and every morning when he woke up, he was looking upon the city of Sodom. It's not a surprise to me, given that, that we don't hear about Lot for a chapter and a half. And when he appears again, guess where he's living? He and his family have moved inside. When you have the temple walls built, but the city has no boundaries that separates the people of God within it from the world around it, you know what's going to happen. There's a whole generation. Remember, it's been 14 years. So there are kids who are now teenagers, and all they can remember is living in a land of ruins with no clear boundaries. Boundaries are important for children. They're important for teenagers. They're important for us all. The cupbearer to the Persian king is a man named Nehemiah. And he has heard that the city of Jerusalem is in shambles. His concern is noted by the king. Now, remember, we were already reading in the end of Chronicles, and we read in Ezra that God is stirring up the work here. God's working through the hearts and minds and actions of the Persian kings. And the Persian king, who has come to trust and love Nehemiah, gives him full ability to go home to his homeland, to repair the breach, to build the walls. Now, the problem wasn't just that the city had no walls. The people had no visible moral or spiritual boundaries, and the walls represented that distinction. The plan was generally agreed to by all the insiders, but you know who didn't like the plan? Just imagine if you've been rubbing shoulders, working with, living along with your neighbors, and all of a sudden you begin to erect gigantic tower walls all around, separating you from them. And so they face all kinds of heartache. In chapter 4 and in chapter 6, they are opposed by the folks around. It doesn't seem that odd to us because we've read Ezra, and the same thing happened there. But there was great work to do, and they were able to do it. Do you remember that great line? It's quoted so often in sermons on Nehemiah about why they were able to work so well, because, say it with me, the people had a mind to work. 
They did. They repaired the walls in less than two months. Pretty incredible work. And so many blessings followed. Here's one of the blessings in chapter five. It says the poor among them began to be noticed and cared for. It's amazing how the walls helped them notice that. Without the walls, it all begins to blend together. But within the walls, they began to recognize who are our own and who's lacking. And the poor began to be recognized and cared for. In chapter 9, they have a national confession. The whole, the whole people, they all speak about, we have been slaves in this land, slaves to this day because of our sin, and we repent and confess where we stand. And in chapter 10, what usually follows a period of mourning and repentance is a period of restoration. And they recommitted themselves to God's law. And by the end of the book, it's easy to see that God has a distinct people called by his name, living by his purpose. And not just for themselves, but for those around. It was obvious who are God's people and who are not. Do you know why they were able to build the walls in record time? Uh, You think we've already answered that. The people had a mind to work. Well, that's true. But I've always found it fascinating that some of the texts say that for a lot of the people, they were charged with building the part of the wall that was in front of their house. Now, that's always been interesting to me. Which part of the wall do you want to be most secure? Which part of the wall do you notice most often? Which part of the wall, if something's not quite looking right or starting to go bad or a crack is beginning to show, would you be the first to notice and fix? Pretty smart move, I think. And it wasn't just the part in front of their house, which was a case in some of those uh, stories. The act itself brought people together. Rich and poor were working side by side. Old and young. They mentioned the perfume maker. They mentioned some great leaders in the city. Occasionally it'll say that the, the Tekoites, they do their part, but the nobles would not lift a finger. That happens, you know, sometimes too. But I also found it amazing that there was one person, one group, given an unenviable task. But I want you to see who it was. In verse 14... It says that Malchiah repaired the dung gate. I don't care what version you've got. That's not a job you would enjoy doing. But Malchiah is the son of Rechav, ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem. Repairs the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, And it's bars. It all needs to be fixed. And the part you play makes a difference for everybody else. And laying down on the job, doing a poor job, not caring about any part of the job, 
spells ruin for everyone. I hope you're beginning to hear the gospel in what I'm saying. One people with one purpose set side by side, regardless of their backgrounds, working for one common good because of the name they've been called to distinguish themselves from among the nations, recognizing that it's the same God who gave them the right and the power and the ability to go back and restore those walls that gives them a reason to exist in the first place. There are so many rich themes in this book, and I want to point out a couple of them. Christ was not like anyone else. He lived like no one else. And because of him, you and I are called into a body. And according to 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, we are a distinct people. That language is reminiscent of the stories we're talking about. And the writer in 1 Peter 2 is drawing off of all those stories when he says, you are a royal nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's own special people set apart. Jesus was hated by all men. And he told his disciples, you will be hated by all men. But here's the rub. Christ could have come in a number of ways. I suppose, at least in theory, Christ could have come as a sage who lived on the outskirts, calling people to come to the outskirts to hear his wise message, and then he would, you know, melt away in the snow. Or he could have simply pronounced his messages from on high, But instead, he became one of us and rubbed shoulders with us. He worked with carpentry or masonry like us. He walked the same dirty roads that we walk. He experienced life, what it's like to buy, sell, and trade, to have a job. Maybe he experienced what it's like to lose a job, text doesn't say. He came to understand what it means to grow up, to experience life. I don't know what all he experienced, but I imagine school days for us and school days 2,000 years ago had a lot in common. Teenagers are teenagers are teenagers. And Christ experienced it all. It's why when he calls people to his table and you have prostitutes and tax collectors, it's not the first time Jesus is ever rubbing shoulders with people in the world. His whole life was a life of doing business with, serving with, serving alongside of the rest of the world. Christ calls us to live within the borders of his kingdom, but his kingdom is like no other kingdom. We're not called to be isolated from the world. I don't know how to draw this map, but in my mind, it's something like a third or fourth dimensional kind of story where God's kingdom, which is separate and distinct for now, sits right on top of what looks like the world around us. And we, members of his kingdom, still live among the world, but we don't find our home here. We shine like lights in a crooked and perverse generation, 
It's the language of Philippians. There are things we will not do, but we resist while displaying the character of Christ in the midst of a broken world, not far removed from it. And it's only if we live like Christ lived and bear the scorn that Christ bore and repay brutality with kindness and hope like he did that the world will ever see the beauty of the gospel. Our pain is heaven's gain. Those walls belong to him. And this is why it's so very important that we live within the walls of the kingdom. It's incredible how much room we have to walk and move and grow. Christ was able to share the message of the kingdom in places that were considered seedy by polite society. And he was able to share the gospel of the kingdom in synagogues and in homes where people gathered and with lepers and in caves and on boats in the middle of the sea. Christ was able to share the message of the kingdom everywhere. But he never lived in such a way that anybody ever mistook his actions for something other than kingdom living. And we're called to be like that. We're called to be people. Paul says, if we were to be separated from folks in the world, we'd have to leave the whole world. Instead, live in such a way, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that by the way you live, people will see what you're doing and they will glorify your father who is in heaven. Those walls belong to him. Therefore, our own good and therefore the good of the whole world. A distinct people called to live out the gospel. A couple of questions to be thinking about. What difference does your relationship with Christ make in all the areas of your life? And are the walls of the kingdom, the borders of the kingdom clear in all those relationships? What about in your marriage? There's, a pl- there's plenty of room within a marriage when your spouse is hurting and straying. You, carrying the gospel and the spirit of Christ, can go to the farthest depths as Christ runs everywhere to reach lost sheep. But you go in the power and the spirit of Christ because the walls of the kingdom protect you. But you must not join even your spouse in that which is unholy. For how you live tells the story of the gospel. What about in your friendships, in your career, in your student life, in your work life? It might be tempting to say, I won't hang around anyone anywhere that does or says anything other than what I would do or say possible to do that. But look at Christ who shows us what it looks like to live within the kingdom walls in the presence of those who don't know that the kingdom is available even for them. Do you regard your distinctiveness as God's own child, a source of joy or something to hide? A few years ago, um, I have, I have a 
few years ago, I had a friend. I have a friend. I have some now too. A few years ago, he, um, he's an introvert and he was reading a book in an airport and uh, he wears a cross around his neck and uh, he is a preacher and sitting two down from him in the airport was a woman who just began sobbing. I mean, she just began sobbing. And my friend said, I began to ask myself the hard question. Do I keep my cross hidden below my shirt, which allows me to keep reading my book? Or do I pull it out, which would symbolize to her, I'm somebody who's here to help. And he said, he pulled it out. And the woman saw it. And he said, is there anything I can do to help you? And of course, the answer was yes. I don't think we have to hand out hats to tell everybody where we go to church or what we believe. But would our lives look different if we always wore those hats? It doesn't necessarily mean that we wouldn't have the same connections in our lives. But it might say something about how those connections think about us. Do they know? Do they know that there's something different about us? Is there any visible distinction between your life and the life of someone who does not know Christ? Let the borders of the kingdom be visible in me. Would anything look, would anybody look at your life and be able to see that you are a believer? Or would they think of you as a stealth Christian, undetected? These are the questions that I find myself asking. I appreciate Michael Williams for bringing those up in his book. And I begin to think about the story of Nehemiah. Once you build the walls, It does protect you, but it also identifies you. And identity carries with it responsibility. Is there anything that we can do for you tonight? Is there any reason why you need the prayers of your brothers or sisters? Whatever it is, may the story of Nehemiah encourage us to know that God is with his people. He calls us to be distinct. He gives us the responsibility, but he also says, carry me with you wherever you go. For his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and he wants it to flood the earth. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.